Welcome to episode 152 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 152 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm doing great. So I just got home from visiting my niece. She's at my parents' house right now, and she has been living in China for the past several months. She went way before, like in the in this fall, I guess, and she was teaching English to Chinese citizens through a university, and it was part of, she was in the Peace Corps, or she is in the Peace Corps, but she was was teaching over there. And because of the coronavirus outbreak, they had to evacuate and they weren't even allowed to go back to their apartments. Like they got a message that said, do not leave where you are right now. Everyone, we're getting you together. We're going to ship you out of the, the country. So it sounded like a spy novel, you know, something you read about the way they had to evacuate. And they went to Taiwan and she was in the Philippines and now she's back and she's safe and sound. But man, can you imagine having to leave and not bring anything with you? That's crazy. I was going to say it sounds like a horror film or a sci-fi film or that pandemic board game or something. I'm glad she's safe. She's safe. So, but anyway, yeah, she's like, they're they're eventually going to go and get their things and ship them to them, but they don't know when. Like people had to leave laptops behind and those are not going to be shipped to them because they can't ship them. So she was lucky she had her laptop with her at least, but it sounded really scary, but I'm glad that she's okay. We're glad she's safe and sound and and back on home soil. And her next Peace Corps assignment is in the Caribbean. So that sounds really nice. She's going to go to the Caribbean and be there. That's insane. It actually reminds me, you know, David Sinclair's Lifespan book, which I talk about all the time, but like about a third of the book actually is about what the future of humanity would look like in a world where we don't age and he said that the major threat actually to the population is the outbreak of some virus that just wipes you out from that, you know, compared to like other things like, you know, meteor or Armageddon or whatever, that a virus outbreak is actually what is most likely to happen. Well, she said it, it was freaky to see the way that they had to be quarantined and the way that people were not going outside and there was a lot going on. So it makes you think. Yeah, that really does. Anyway, not to terrify anyone or make you scared. Sorry, everybody. We're starting on a downer. But my niece is home and she's safe, and that is really good. That is good. I have some uppers we can go to. Yay, let's hear something good. Want to hear something good. Two quick things. One is I just got something that is making me so happy. I, I like can't even describe how happy it is making me. Well, I love that. What's making you happy? A chest freezer. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Because every time I was opening the freezer, it was so full. Is your freezer full at your house? Yes, it's so full. It's so full. I had to actually get some things out of it and give it to somebody else, and I didn't want to. Do you feel like every time you open the freezer, you have this little stress moment because you're like, oh, it's so full? Yeah. That's what was happening to me. Jen, if you get a chest freezer, now it's like I open the freezer and it's so like spacious and free and I get so happy. And then the actual chest freezer itself is just beautiful. And I open it and I lift up the top and it's only like a fourth full. It's full of like, you know, butcher box. And, I, you I know. knew that's what it was because that's what mine's full of. Yeah. <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah. But oh my goodness. And it's not even that expensive. I'll put a link to the one I bought on Amazon. It was less than $200. So you just have it right in your apartment. 
Yes. I could put one in the garage. That's a really good idea. See, in my other house, we remodeled the kitchen there when we first moved in in 2005. And I bought large full-size, a large full-size fridge, a large full-size freezer, and they were separated, but they were full-size. It was all fridge, all freezer. And it sounds fancy and expensive, but it wasn't. It was Frigidaire. They were not expensive at all. They were cheaper than like a side-by-side, but they're huge and they were counter depth. And so my new house has a you know, a fancier fridge. It's built in. It's like a KitchenAid or something. And, you know, the fridge part is bigger, but the freezer is little and I'm having a hard time adjusting (laughs) because I'm used to having a full-size freezer in my kitchen. Yeah. So Jen, this freezer, I swear, I got the smallest one. It's only 3.5 cubic feet, but it fits like literally it's only a fourth full and Amazon delivered it straight to my door. I can't even express how happy it makes me. You know, I may think about that. I could definitely put one of those in my garage. It's funny though. I was talking to my mom. I was like, mom, now I have a chest freezer and a meat grinder. doesn't look so good if the FBI comes calling. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And then the other happy upper thing was I recorded an amazing episode with James Clement. He wrote a book called The Switch, which is all about mTOR and fasting and diets for longevity. And it was really fascinating, but... We were talking afterwards and not really about any of that, but we were talking about stuff like consciousness and the different parts of our brains and the left brain versus right brain and all that stuff I'm always obsessed with. And he was saying that this is so fascinating. So, okay. So when you think something is like the thinking, like the left part of your brain that's thinking it probably, but if you say it out loud, then other parts of your brain hear it that wouldn't normally be exposed to it. So with things like affirmations, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. So say you have an affirmation, like I am strong, you know, you might just be thinking that in your head, like I am strong, I am strong. But if you say it out loud, like I am strong, you're thinking it, but you're also saying it. And so your other parts of your brain are hearing it. It's like life-changing. And then we were saying how you, if you say it in the the third person, now I feel like a crazy person, Jen, because, but apparently if you say it in the third person, then it's like it's being told to your brain by somebody else. So if you're like, Melanie, you are strong, that that'll have like a really powerful effect. So literally I've been walking around my apartment, like saying out loud affirmations to myself in the third person. And I feel like I'm crazy, but I think it's having a really beneficial effect. No, I 100% think that's true. And it makes me think back to that Saturday Night Live skit. I don't know. It might be way before your time. It was like the 90s or 80s. It might have been the 80s. And it was the guy standing in front of the mirror going, you are strong. You are you, <laughs> you are a good person. But it was he was looking in the mirror. That probably gets it into your brain another way. Oh, that probably does something else too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, as when I was a teacher, of course, I taught elementary kids. And so reading out loud, having them read out loud and follow along, and like, like, let's say I was reading to them, but they're following along with their eyes. So they're hearing it and they're having it going through their eyes and their ears, basically. They learn it better. So yeah, the more ways you can get something in, the better. I believe that just from what I know from teaching. Yeah, no, it was, it was fascinating. So now you need to stand in front of the mirror and say, Melanie is strong. Melanie, Melanie has a chest freezer. I know. <laughs> well, Melanie knows she has a chest freezer, but like, <laughs> it's so funny though. I feel literally crazy, but I actually think it's having a pretty profound effect. So listeners, a little crazy like a fox. Yep. 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 And then yep, the last thing is, so I've recorded like 
five episodes for my other podcasts and they've all been so amazing and I've learned so much and I want to talk about all of them, but I won't. But listeners keep listening to my other podcasts because there's some really incredible episodes coming up. It feels great to know that you're doing something that is really getting good info out into the world. Yeah. Yesterday I interviewed the founder of Blue Blocks. They make blue light blocking glasses. Guys, I learned so much. Like I thought I knew about blue blocking glasses and like how to best biohack that. No. I learned so much. So yeah. Anyways, shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. We have a question from Carolyn and her question says, hi ladies, my boyfriend is a study slash hardcore fact finding slash need to have solid medical research kind of guy. Even though he has essentially been doing an IF eating pattern for a few years without really meaning to and has lost 35 pounds. I'm trying to convince him that there could be lots of other benefits happening in his body, and he always seems to not believe me. He feels like he has lost the weight from cutting back his food portions, which he has done considerably. However, every day he eats between about 2 p.m. to 9 p.m., so he is basically doing 17-7. Of course, I can never explain things well enough for him to believe what I am saying. He always tells me to find the studies from credible medical research. I guess my question to you is, are the studies you all find done by individual research companies or are they from actual medical research facilities? I'm having a really hard time convincing him of the benefits that are happening in his body because he is, quote, fasting for 17 hours a day. And actually, that doesn't need to be in quotes. He is fasting for 17 hours a day. So ignore the quote. He is fasting for 17 hours a day. He is not the type to read books or listen to podcasts. And it's so hard for me to just relay all of the great info you ladies have given in the last couple of years on your podcast. He is not fully discrediting the IF lifestyle, but he needs to see facts in front of him, but will only believe it if it comes from medical research. Good news, boyfriend. We've got some for you. That was me. She says, ha, ha, ha. He is a difficult one to deal with sometimes. No matter what he believes, I will completely embrace IF and all the great things I can't wait to benefit from it. I have been doing IF since January 1st, 2020, clean fasting for 18 to 20 hours a day. The weight is definitely going down, but it is slow and steady, about a half pound to one pound a week so far. I'm only looking to lose about 15 more pounds to be at my goal weight of 130. Any information you can give me about the sources of your studies would be wonderful. Sorry this is so long, and thank you for taking the time to read it. Keep up the great work. You ladies are great. And she wrote it like that, like Tony the Tiger. So I had to say it that way. Thank you, Carolyn. All right, Melanie, what do you have to say to Carolyn? All right. So this is a great question from Carolyn. I think this is the first time we've ever received this question. So I thought it was a really great one to throw in. So anytime I say I read a study that showed this or studies show this, those are all studies published in clinical medical literature. They're not... Ditto. Yep, ditto. They're not like a blog post. I mean, I might have like read a blog post and then was referred to a study, but they're all studies. So usually I, as far as reading them, PubMed is a good resource for them. For getting the full versions of studies, oftentimes they'll be on ResearchGate if they're not on PubMed, but there are a lot of resources that you can use to try to track down the full version, even if you don't have access. Sometimes you can just read the abstract, but it's great when it is open access and you have access to the whole thing. That's great. But yeah, so as far as like presenting information to him, I mean, Google Scholar is 
like my favorite thing in the whole world. So if you go to Google Scholar, you can type in, you know, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. And then everything that comes up is going to be mostly, sometimes stuff sneaks through and I don't know how it like got into the Google Scholar loop, but usually everything underneath it will be stuff in published medical literature. So that's what usually what I use to actually find studies and such. But yeah, that's that. Jen, what are your thoughts? Well, I have one place that he needs to go, and it's the only thing he needs to read ever for right now. It's everything. (laughs) And it is that article that was a review article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, December 26th. And it was written by Dr. Cabo or Cabo, I'm not sure how he says his name, and Dr. Mark Matson. They wrote it together. And it is basically a review article is when the scientists go and look for everything that's been written on the subject and they compile a review article, which is the best of the best. So every bit of it is based on the medical research. And it's like, here's the summary of the research all in one place. Oh, and Melanie, I have something cool to tell you about this article that I found out yesterday. It's actually kind of thrilling. And so our audience will love it. Somebody in in one of my Facebook groups posted that he had been listening to Mark Matson in some kind of interview of some sort. They were talking about this article that came out December 26th that I'm referring to now in the New England Journal of Medicine that it got so much media attention. And Mark Matson said the reason they wrote this is because the New England Journal of Medicine asked them to because so many doctors had been getting questions about intermittent fasting from their patients that they wanted to have something they could read. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Now, I heard this secondhand. Like I said, a group member heard Matson say this, tell this story. So I'm telling it to you about third hand here. So to think about that, doctors said, hey, New England Journal of Medicine, a lot of our patients want to know about intermittent fasting and we just don't know. Get us some info. So this review article was written for that reason, which is thrilling. So Back to Carolyn's boyfriend. Go to the New England Journal of Medicine. Actually, Carolyn, you probably want to do this for him. (laughs) Find the December 26th issue. I mean, this is the premier medical journal in the world, many people would say. And so it's not free on PubMed, but you can actually you know, sign up for a subscription to the New England Journal of Medicine for free. And they allow you to read three articles for free every month. You have to put in your email, but it's the New England Journal of Medicine. They're not going to spam you. And even if they did spam you, I want the New England Journal of Medicine to spam me with anything they want to spam me with. Go for it. (laughs) They're such a great source, but they're not going to spam you. Anyway, you can download the PDF version of this article and just save it once you have access to it. And then it's like you have a legit copy of it that you can refer to. So this article talks about everything we know Now, based on the state of current research, it's called Effects of Intermittent Fasting on Health, Aging, and Disease. And my favorite part about when this came out is, you know, we see the people that are joining our Facebook groups and why. And so, like, the reason, you know, they have to answer question one, why are you interested in intermittent fasting? And generally, Melanie, you could probably guess the number one answer most people say is weight loss. Yes, that's what we hear most of the time. People say weight loss. But right after this news story came out, after this article was released, and it was on all the major channels, it was on all the news shows, the number one answer people started giving for that brief period of time was health. That's amazing. That thrilled me because, you know, 
both of us probably, I know I did. I came to intermittent fasting for the weight loss, but I stick around for the health benefits. And I wish I had understood the health benefits way back then. I didn't. We just thought it was a diet. You know, now we know it's so much more than that. So Carolyn, your boyfriend is 100% wrong when he says that the only benefits have to do with the fact that he's, you know, quote, eating less food. The fasted time, the part of the day that you're in the fasted state, a lot of things go on in your body that would not happen if you were eating the exact same number of calories spread out throughout the day. We've got lots and lots of research about that. So it's not just the number of calories you're eating, although there is research that calorie restriction as a strategy for longevity is a good thing. There's more to it because we're eating them in a smaller window of time. We may be eating less food as intermittent fasters, yes, but we also have that long period in the fasted state that has the benefits as well. And so they're actually, you know, different types of benefits. So this article is fabulous. It talks about, and actually here's a quote, studies in animals and humans have shown that many of the health benefits of intermittent fasting are not simply the result of reduced free radical production or weight loss. Instead, intermittent fasting elicits evolutionary conserved adapted cellular responses that are integrated between and within organs in a manner that improves glucose regulation, increases stress resistance, and suppresses inflammation. Now I'm going to stop there. You can go get the article yourself. I mean, I could literally read the whole article to everybody and it's amazing, but I want you to go get it yourself and, you know, sign up, get appropriate access through legitimate channels you know, get it through the New England Journal of Medicine, download it, have your own copy. And there's also a treasure trove in the back of all the research that they cite. So if he loves research, there it all is. I'm looking at the reference section now. This one article has 80 different other studies cited. And these are all legit, like from Cell Metabolism or New England Journal of Medicine or Science. This is not just, you know, an opinion piece. This is the the creme de la creme. Something I was going to say was that another way to find the resources is if you can find, you know, a good study at the end, they'll reference all the studies they reference and then... That's why I just get into rabbit holes, though, because then I start reading. Well, it's true. And this is not a study. This is not, you know, the the one I'm talking about is not a study. It's a review article. And I know Melanie understands that, but I want to make sure Carolyn understands and the listeners. This is a review article. So they are pulling together all the studies in their review article all in one place. That's a good thing to clarify for listeners because we probably just assume most people are familiar, but basically... When you have, you know, published literature in medical journals, there's like actual studies, you know, controlled trials where it's like, we tested this, we had an hypothesis and this happened. And then there are things like meta-analyses and reviews, like meta-analysis is where they'll like look over, they'll like have a topic. So they'll be like, what do the majority of studies show about this question maybe? And then what they'll do is they'll search the literature and they'll find all the studies that fit their criteria for addressing that question. And then usually what they'll do is they'll be like, they'll have like criteria that they think makes it credible. So then they'll like throw out a lot of the studies because they don't fit the quote criteria. Basically it's an attempt to find the most credible literature about a topic. And then they'll like synthesize it all and say the majority of studies show this or the majority of the studies show this. So that's a meta-analysis. And then there's like review articles like Jim was just talking about. And those are more 
I don't want to say opinion piece, but those are more like, rather than let's look at every single study on this topic, they're like, Hey, here's a topic. Here's what, you know, findings have shown about it. So it's more like a student writing a thesis paper about something. That's kind of like what a review article is. Right. That's a great way of explaining it to people, but it's all, you know, all this is in reputable medical journals. Yes, exactly. And the fact that in a meta-analysis, what Melanie said, they throw some out because they don't meet their criteria, that just shows you research is hard. Yeah. I will, since we're talking about this, so for example, I'm still reading How Not to Diet by Dr. Michael Greger. It's taking me forever because literally like every sentence has a footnote and then you click on the footnote if you're reading in Kindle and it pulls up the study that's referenced. And I am basically reading every study referenced. And Jen, oh my goodness. I mean, I'm learning so much. I'm very grateful for the book because these studies, I don't think I would have naturally come across them because it's fascinating research. Here's my question. I bet this is where you're going with it. Let me interrupt you. Are you finding that what he says they say isn't quite what they say? Literally last night I got... (laughs) I read some things and I was like, is somebody else reading this and <laughs> getting upset thinking about it? For example, and so listeners, this is things you can look for when you're analyzing, because I really encourage listeners, you know, with all of this, especially with a topic like intermittent fasting to read as much as you can and, and be exposed to as many opinions as you can, but always look at the source material. Don't ever take anything at face value, even anything I say or Jen says, please, please know. Exactly. That's why we put the sources there. Check them. Yeah. So for example, it's ironic because, you know, I just talked about discrediting studies for certain reasons. Dr. Greger actually does this all throughout the book when it's in favor of the hypothesis that he's putting forth. So he's obviously supporting, and I think there's a lot of health benefits to, you know, a plant-based diet, but that's obviously what he's supporting. And he's very anti-animal products. Anytime that basically there's a study that does not support the plant-based diet approach, if he can show a reason that it was not credible. Like the methodology was bad. Yeah. He dismisses it. So like one of the, the things I've noticed all throughout the book is he'll say that they tested this with plants or they tested this with, you know, certain dietary approaches and it didn't really pan out, but it could have been because the patients weren't following it. He says that all the time regardless of whether or not the study says that. And then, so he has a section on protein and he says that people often report feeling fuller after eating a protein rich meal compared to a carbohydrate or fat rich one. But does that feeling last? And then he says, because from a weight loss standpoint, satiety ratings only matter if you end up cutting down on subsequent calorie intake. And then he says, and even a review funded in part by the meat, dairy, and egg industries acknowledges this does not seem to be the case for protein. Hours after consumption, that protein eaten earlier doesn't tend to end up cutting calories. So I read that and I was like, something sounds off (laughs) here. I was like, did that study really say that? So then I pulled up the study, which was called The Role of Protein in Weight Loss and Maintenance. And it said that the ironic thing is the majority of it was actually supporting the complete opposite idea. It was basically saying that high protein diets increase satiety and are correlated with weight loss. It does say, although this, and this is where Dr. Greger was pulling that comment that he made from. 
It says, although shorter term, tightly controlled feeding studies consistently identify benefits with increased protein consumption, longer term studies produce limited and conflicting findings. Nevertheless, a recent meta-analysis showed persistent benefits of a high-protein weight loss diet on body weight and fat mass. And then the follow-up sentence says, dietary compliance appears to be the primary contributor to the discrepant findings because improvements in weight management were detected in those who adhered to the prescribed higher-protein regimen, whereas those who did not adhere to the diet had no marked improvements. So basically, what this study is saying is that, yes, high-protein seems to correlate to weight loss and increase satiety, except when people don't follow it, which is literally what Dr. Greger does through the entire book to support his plant-based studies. But when it's in something that he's trying to support the opposite of, which is a high-protein diet, what does he pull from this, this, this article, which is supporting high-protein diet for weight loss? He says, oh, actually, this article is showing that high-protein does not lead to increased satiety afterwards, which is not at all what that article said. I'm like, is nobody else reading this? Sorry, Jen. I'm sorry I'm so upset. I'm just like... I wonder that people aren't. Honestly, honestly, I can't tell you. I mean, I've I've talked about this before. I can't tell you how many times I've read a book, and it was even a book I liked, and I liked the author, and I liked their premise, and I believed it. And then I went and checked the study. I'm like, that's not what that said. Yeah, I just don't know if I'm getting unnecessarily frustrated, but I'm just like... Well, no, I think we deserve to be frustrated. I'm like, this is a a complete manipulation. That's what it is. It's manipulation. Because people just believe it. Listen, I am on a listserv. Do we call them listservs now? I don't know. But I'm somebody that was in my group suggested that I get added to something called Obesity and Energetics Offerings, which is a joint collaboration of scholars from the IU School of Public Health, Bloomington. So it's, it's a university like listserv kind of thing. And they send out everything that is relevant in the obesity world. And man, I I haven't been looking at it as much as I I should be, but they have a whole section of that email that's called headline versus study. And here's an example. Here's a headline. Mediterranean diet may keep seniors sharper, stronger. That was the headline that was put out. But the actual study was associations of diet adherence with microbiome changes and associations in turn with frailty and cognitive function, randomization discarded, causation not established. (laughs) So the study said causation not established. I mean, and then the headline was totally different. Other articles based on the same study said differences in cognitive changes between the two groups were not statistically significant. But yet from that, the headline in the news was Mediterranean diet may keep seniors sharper, stronger. I mean, they could have said Mediterranean diet may not keep seniors sharper, stronger. I mean, both are the same true. It's really frustrating to me because... It's just very frustrating. <laughs> well, because that's what we're we're hearing these sound bites. We're like, ooh, this is going to make everything better. And so then you actually read the study. And you're like, oh, that's not what it said at all. But then everyone's heard that headline, so they believe it. Just like that whole, you know, breakfast, you know, is the most important meal of the day. And when you look at the study, it was funded by Kellogg. And that is not a lie. It is true. That is really the truth. I have that study cited in my new book, Fast Feast Repeat. And so we're basing all of our dietary advice on something that's been misinterpreted and spun. Or for example, like something else he said is when people diet, they often increase their risk of not meeting all their essential nutrient requirements. 
ketogenic diets tend to be so nutritionally vacuous that one assessment estimated that in order to get a sufficient daily intake of all essential vitamins and minerals, you'd have to eat 37,500 calories a day. So I was like, okay, first of all, I would like to know what we're clarifying by a ketogenic diet because there are a lot of manifestations of a ketogenic diet. And I find it very difficult to believe that all ketogenic diets are necessarily nutritionally vacuous, <laughs> especially if you're eating nutrient-rich foods in your ketogenic diet. But then I pulled up the study he referenced, which he was saying that this study said that you'd have to eat 37,500 calories a day on a ketogenic diet. Is that what the study said? Nope. <laughs> so the study was looking at four different diets. It was looking at Atkins. That was the ketogenic diet that he was referencing. It was looking at the best life diet. See, what is that, Jen? The best life diet? I have no idea. And I know a lot about diets. <laughs> I don't know that one. The DASH diet and the South Beach diet. The problem here is the Atkins diet is not I don't believe representative of a way that a it's not the modern ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially like the induction period of Atkins, you know, which is basically eliminating almost all you know vegetables and almost like a carnivore type approach in a way. But this study actually found micronutrient deficiencies, and it, it was saying that it would require like massive amounts of calories for all four of those diets. It was saying Atkins would require thirty seven thousand five hundred calories. Best Life would require 20,500. DASH would require 33,500. So the DASH diet stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. The ironic thing is the DASH diet is basically exactly what Dr. McGregor, not exactly, but it's really a diet in line with what he is promoting throughout the book because it's based on an eating plan rich in fruits and vegetables and low fat, non-fat dairy and whole grains, high fiber, low to moderate fat, rich in potassium, calcium and magnesium. This is a diet perfectly in line with what Dr. Greger is supporting throughout the book, yet this review that he just mentioned to criticize the ketogenic diet by, because it said that it needed 37,500 calories, that was based on Atkins, not just you know the overall ketogenic diet, but that same review showed that the DASH diet, which is in line with him, would require 33,500 calories to meet micronutrient sufficiency. So... Basically, friends, I'm sorry if that was like a very long, very long soapbox, but I just think it's so important to read the studies, read the studies, please, please. And I want to empower listeners because I think we feel, because I feel like this a lot, Jen, I don't know if you do, but it's like, oh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, at a research institution. I'm not a scholar. So there's this idea that they must be right. And who am I to, you know, make inferences but I want to really empower listeners because you can read the content and you can see what it says and you can draw your own conclusions and don't feel like <laughs> that you don't know what you're thinking. You know, does that make sense? I just want to empower listeners. Well, yeah. If you think about the way universities were set up, you know, that was where all the information was housed. The books were there. The libraries were there. You had to go and read everything in paper form. And so as the regular population got used to the idea that we didn't have access to this, that it was special. You had to go to this special place to get the information. Well, now we're in the information age where we can access the information ourselves and you can read it and we are smart enough to figure out what it says. And so I think higher education is going to change eventually because there, it's not like 
everything is, you know, like they're the holder of all facts and we have to travel there to get it. The facts are available to everybody. And so instead of having you tell me what the facts are, I can just look at them myself and see them for myself. And even so, I say the word facts, but so much of this is, you know, when you're doing nutrition research with humans or even with animals, it's still very little of it is, quote, fact. (laughs) It's all just, here's what we did and here's what we found and here's what we think. Yeah. And for example, I know I always talk about David Sinclair. I'm like old David Sinclair fangirl, but he comes on a lot of podcasts and, you know, and he is a renowned researcher. And one thing I've heard him say on multiple podcasts, I don't know if he said it on mine. I don't think he did. He said how he thinks podcasts are actually a fantastic platform now for spreading information to the audience because it doesn't have to go through this gatekeeper. It's like a gatekeeper, right? It can just go straight to the audience. Yeah, I think so too. I think that that we're really in a in an era where where anybody can learn. No one can stop you from learning. And and you can read and and figure it out for yourself and you can be skeptical and you can look at the source material and you can draw conclusions and you can say, "Wait a minute. I can't draw that conclusion that you're drawing because of this and that and the other." And it's okay. Yep, exactly. I do have one more thing to say to Carolyn. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that I really wanted to invite Dr. Gregor onto my podcast, but I don't even know if I could. I wonder what that dialogue, <laughs> what that conversation would look like. You know, when you're really entrenched in, here's the way everybody should eat. Everybody should eat this one way. And, you know, just like us with intermittent fasting, we love intermittent fasting and we love to see the studies that put it in a good light. But then again, I'm not finding ones that don't and saying they do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, the studies I'm telling you about, they, if I tell you a study says something, that is what it said. Yeah, because I love opposing viewpoints. I'm always like, tell me why I'm wrong. I'm not looking for why I'm right. I'm looking for why I'm wrong, which I think is, I mean, like, it's not the way science is supposed to be. You're supposed to like have a hypothesis and try to find everything wrong. I mean, I, I, I'm not doing that because that's the way, quote, science is supposed to be, but that's just the way I intuitively feel because I feel like that's the surest way to find the truth is if you are trying to find any way that you could be wrong. I would love to engage with people that have, you know, different viewpoints, but it's just hard, you know, when you see that there is all this cherry picking that's happening. So what were you going to say to Carolyn? Well, I just wanted to say to Carolyn, she only wants to lose 15 more pounds. And so that she's been losing slow and steady half a pound to one pound per week. And I would say, Carolyn, that's exactly the pace that you're going to see. You may even see it be a little slower than that, but Instead of thinking about when will I get to my 15-pound loss, I want you to kind of get rid of that number goal because you may actually find that you never see the weight of 130, but you may find that you're, let's say, for example, you get to 135. You might be smaller at 135 than you used to be at 130. Don't be surprised if and when that happens. And so if you are like, well, I'm not going to be done till I get to 130, maybe you'll never get to 130 because The way that we preferentially tap into our fat stores during the fast, we burn fat, lean muscle is preserved, or you even build more muscle. And so we have body recomposition. So you're leaner maybe at 135 than you used to be at even 125. You know, we've all seen those photos of someone who weighs more but is smaller than they used to be. And it's because of that body composition change. So I would like you to release the expectation that you're going to ever see 130. But instead, think about the size pants you want to wear and focus on that. Get some gold pants and keep trying those on and see how the fit of your pants is changing. Yeah. And then also to that point, 
last night, it, this is a different factor, but you're talking about body recomposition. I was researching the role of salt and water retention in body composition last night. I found a really, really fascinating study and it compared two groups of people on a calorie restricted diet, but one was like higher in sodium and one was like a low sodium diet. What was really interesting about it was that the low sodium group lost more weight, but they didn't lose any more body fat. Right. I was hoping that's what it was going to be because that was my prediction in my brain. Yeah. So comparing the two groups, they had a significant decrease in both weight and BMI on the low sodium group. And these were calorie matched. So both groups were consuming the same amount of calories. I mean, they did lose quote more weight. It seemed like the low salt diet lost more weight and they did, but they didn't lose any more fat and there wasn't any change in muscle either. So basically they lost water. Fluid. Yeah. That's just crazy. And we just want to see that number on the scale, but were those people? No, they hadn't lost any fat at all. Different. I need to clarify because it was a calorie restricted. So they all lost weight. They didn't lose any more fat. So even though, so both groups were dieting and both groups lost weight because they were dieting and calorie restricted. One group seemingly lost more weight and they did lose more weight because it is a number on the scale, but it was, it was all water. So I just, I think that's actually really reassuring because there's just, you know, so much, there's so much going on. Well, you know, it's just like all those studies about alternate daily fasting that at the end, the conclusion is the alternate daily fasting group didn't lose any more weight than the people who were just on a calorie matched restricted diet. But when you dig in, they all lost more fat and retained more muscle. Yeah. And it's the same exact thing. And then the headlines are people didn't lose any more weight than the calorie group. It's just the calories. Yeah, but look at their body composition. They lost more fat. They retained more muscle. And exactly. So, okay. So like reading that study, so say this is a fun fun game. So that study that we have, we can make so many different headlines from it. We could say low sodium diet results in more weight loss. That's actually, that's a true statement. It's a true statement. We could say low sodium diet does not reduce fat more than high sodium diet. Not a lie either. <laughs> we could say low sodium diet preserves muscle mass equal to high sodium diet. Also not a lie. Or you could just say low sodium diet preserves muscle mass. Yeah, you could. And then people assume that, but, but the muscle mass was also preserved in the non-low sodium diet. <laughs> you could also say high muscle, high salt diet preserves muscle mass. Literally, friends. <laughs> yeah. Ignore the headlines. Read the study. <laughs> but really, right after that alternate daily fasting stuff came out, maybe this was 2018, the last batch of those articles came out, the last study, and people were like, see, it's no better than calorie restriction. This proves it. We're like, yeah, they didn't, the weight, but weight is the measure of everything in your body, your water, your bones, your muscle, your fat. <sighs> <laughs> Love it. So listeners, I think I'm like 28% of the way through the book. I feel like I've been reading it for years. I'm going to finish it. I just quit reading it. I couldn't keep going. I had to stop. Well, I'm loving it because the studies that he references are so fascinating. So I'm like learning so much, but then I just have these moments and I'm like, <sighs> it's very upsetting. Yeah. Anyways, shall we answer another question? Yes. All right. So the next question comes from Kathy. And Kathy says, hello, ladies. I've been on this journey for almost three months now. And for the last month, I've really been struggling with mood and irritability. 
I am 45 years old and have already cleared menopause. My fast seemed fairly easy. I'm not hungry, although I am still consumed with what am I going to eat when my window opens on and off throughout the day, and I'm angry, not hangry. Wondering why I feel angry almost all the time. I have not been weighing myself as I'm on this journey for the long haul and don't want to be sidetracked by the scale. I mistakenly hopped on the scale one month after starting because I felt so much better. However, I was not happy with what I saw. Granted, I had no idea what my starting weight was because I hadn't weighed myself in months. In the past, one bad day on the scale would cause me to throw my hands in the air and go right back to my bad habits. I would guess I'm about 50 to 60 pounds overweight. I definitely feel less bloated and somewhat more comfortable in my clothes, and I've taken my measurements on and off throughout. I have seen very minimal changes in my measurements, almost no changes in some areas. I started this journey for weight loss, but after listening to both the IF podcasts, IF stories podcast, and reading the obesity code, I'd also like to benefit from the improved health side of IF. I like how IF simplifies my life and I like how I feel in the fasted state, so I plan to continue. My current goal is a minimum 19-hour fast, but most days during the week I'll fast between 19 to 22 hours. For the last three weeks, I've added a 36-hour fast in the middle of the week. The 36-hour fast usually ends up being closer to 40 hours because I'll wait to eat around lunchtime at work. I'm only doing the longer fast to try and accelerate fat loss. I do yoga three days a week and try for cardio or walking once or twice a week. I mostly eat whatever I want for dinners, and that usually includes pretty healthy meals during the week. I'm much more relaxed on the weekends, but try to stick to a minimum 16-hour fast on Saturdays and Sundays. I definitely feel like I'm eating plenty of food during my window. This probably sounds silly, but I feel like I should be seeing and feeling more changes in my body composition, weight, visually, and or measurements. Could this be what's making me angry and moody, not having any actual proof of progress? Or could there be something hormonal going on? I should say that I'm not a super happy person normally, but I've always been able to fake it better at work and at home so others aren't aware of my moods. I'm having a really hard time concealing my disdain for people and things around me that I really need to keep to myself. It's affecting my work and home relationships, and I'm just tired of feeling this way. Some days I notice slight headaches, but mostly I'm just annoyed with myself and everyone around me. Any suggestions? Thank you for your time, and thank you for your podcasts. I'm not sure I would continue if not for all the information that you both provide, and I really enjoy hearing others tell their success stories. I really hope that one day mine could be a success story to share. Kathy. P.S. I really want to join the Facebook group for support, but I'm very worried about privacy. If I join the group, would my Facebook friends be able to see my questions or posts? Let me answer that part first, because the answer is no and yes. And here's why. The only people that can see what you post in a closed Facebook group are other people that are in that group. Now, here's an example. My large Delay Don't Deny support group has over 225,000 people in it. So it's possible that there may be some real life friends of yours in that group that would see what you're sharing. So like I remember when I was first in Facebook support groups a long, long time ago, none of my friends were in there and I could say whatever I wanted. Then I started telling people about what I was doing and they started joining the groups. And then I was like, wait a minute, People that I really know are now seeing everything I say. So it felt like I lost the privacy. So I get what you're saying. So, you know, the privacy may not be there depending on if your friends are in the groups, but only people in the groups can see what you post. So keep that in mind. So Kathy, I see that you're you're not weighing and you don't want to be sidetracked by the scale, but you're letting yourself be sidetracked 
with measurements and what you see. So I'm going to actually, this might surprise people to hear me say this. I'm going to encourage you to actually start weighing if you want to see progress. And I would encourage you to start weighing every day and once a week, find the average of your last seven weights and compare those. Or use an app like Happy Scale that shows your trending average over time. And you can see as long as it's trending down and you have that green under the curve, then you know that your weight is going down. Even if your daily weight is fluctuating upward, if it's still in that little green area, you know that overall your trend is going down. And here's why. We all lose weight differently. You may not be changing at all visually or in your measurements, but your body could be clearing out visceral fat from around your internal organs. You could be clearing out fat from a fatty liver, and you can't see that with your eyes yet, or you can't see it in your measurements yet, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. So I really, if people want to be tracking what's happening, I want you to have a bunch of tools that you're using all at once. Take photos of yourself from different angles, wearing the same outfit in every photo. Also take your measurements. Also weigh daily and track your trending average over time. And you look at all of that. If your weight is not moving at all, but your measurements are going down, you're seeing success. If your measurements aren't going down at all, but your weight is trending down, you're seeing success. If your weight doesn't seem to be going down, your measurements don't look like they're changing, but your clothes are fitting differently and you look different in your photo, you're seeing success. So I want you to look at all of them and find the things that are changing. Sometimes people find that one thing will change for a while and then another thing will change for a while. For example, someone may lose weight on the scale steadily, down, 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 down. Then their body will plateau at a weight, but they'll see that their measurements change for a little while. And so they're seeing changes there. So I really want you to have all the the tracking tools in your toolbox. You know, I don't weigh myself now, but that's because I'm here at my goal and I'm using my honesty pants, my waist measurements to help me know that I'm staying in the weight range where I want to stay. If I decided I wanted to lose more weight, I mean, I'm not going to, but let's say I did, I would pull a scale out again and start using it, but I would use it as data and I would make sure I knew what the trend was doing instead of like letting each daily fluctuation freak me out. Now, if you're somebody that absolutely cannot use the scale because it upsets you, then okay, don't. But you have to understand that it's possible that you could be losing weight on the scale and not know it by looking at yourself or, you know, be able to necessarily tell with measurements. Also, you know, my measurements change throughout the day, just like weight changes throughout the day. If I measure my waist in the morning, it might be different than if I, or it will be different than if I measure it after dinner. So even that can can vary. And even from day to day, my waist measurement might be up one day because of where I am in my cycle hormonally. And then it might go down. It, it's really just, we're looking at over time. So I would encourage you, it sounds like what you're doing is everything right. You're having one longer fast a week. You're sticking to 19 to 22 hours a day. You're a little more relaxed on weekends, which may be something to look at over time. You know, I couldn't be relaxed both on Saturday and Sunday. I would need to tighten one of those up. I just know myself. But, you know, it sounds like you're doing the right things. 
as far as the the struggling, the mood, the irritability, the being angry, it could be a number of things. It might be because maybe you're used to in the past, you ate to soothe your feelings. A lot of us do that. I've done that before. That could be it. You're missing that. So you need a new coping mechanism. Or maybe it really is like you said, maybe you don't quote see the changes that intermittent fasting is giving you. So you're you're feeling angry about that. Whereas if you were seeing dramatic differences, you would feel better. So I encourage you to really think about the way you're measuring success and progress because we do want to lose the fat we're hoping to lose. And you need to tweak to make sure that that's happening. But in order to know if it's happening, you need to have all these different measures that you can use for comparison's sake. That was a lot. What do you think, Melanie? That was great. And I actually had a slightly, a little bit of a different perspective. What I'm hearing in this question is Kathy experiencing these unpleasant feelings and, you know, frustration with her situation and anger. It sounds like she likes fasting, like she likes the way she feels when she's fasting. So that's good. But beyond that, I feel like something clearly isn't working. It could be that she actually is losing weight and all of this is happening and she's just not realizing it by looking in the mirror or stepping on the scale. Or it could be that something she's doing just isn't working for her. I would encourage you, Kathy, because you don't really talk about what you're eating except that you usually eat you know, mostly whatever you want for dinner, pretty healthy meals during the week, more relaxed on the weekends. I would encourage you to look at maybe what you're eating as well and see if that makes any changes rather than being so super focused on the fasting side of things. Because I think a lot of people can have, if certain foods aren't working for them, it can create, you know, hormonal imbalances or I don't want to say mental problems, but it can, it can create anxiety. It can create depression, you know, anger. If there's a food in your body that is not working for your body, these can result. So that's something to consider is playing around with what you're eating. Also just thinking more about the mindset and perhaps not attaching your perspective of life to your fasting or your weight or how you feel. And I know that's like a huge thing that like we're all trying to do. So that's really hard, but I had a really great interview with Amy Johnson. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it was a really, really powerful perspective to have about not identifying with what we're experiencing. So, you know, not having to attach these feelings of anger or this, these feelings of being upset to what's actually happening in that moment. So I think that might be actually, you know, pretty helpful. It's interesting because you're wanting to know why are you angry and moody? That's half the battle is, you know, figuring out why. And it could be related to what you're eating. It could be, I mean, it could be a lot of things, but then at the same time, I think if you can move towards a mindset of, if you are angry or moody, not having to be defined by that. What I'm getting is that you identify as like, cause you say you're not even a super happy person normally. So this seems to be part of your quote identity already. And you talk about being able to fake it at work to make other people, you know, so they're not aware. I get saddened by having to feel like we have to fake certain things or be certain things or identifying as these unpleasant mood situations when we don't have to really at any point. So I know this is more like esoteric, but I'll definitely put a link to that interview with Amy Johnson. But yeah, so, so basically you have a lot of options. You can, you know, 
go the more of the measuring, the weighing route, you can totally do that. Maybe look at your food choices, work on the mental side of things. But yeah, I think you will be a, a success story one day. Good stuff. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that was it. We had a really interesting episode today. I think it it was interesting to talk. I know we've talked about studies before, but I really enjoyed it. I just think it's so important. I think it's becoming more and more important. I think so too. And, you know, I think we just need to make sure that we understand what's happening and not just taking somebody's word for anything. Yes, exactly. Even mine. Oh, yes. Or mine, please. Please, no. (laughs) That's actually one of my fears. I'm like... (laughs) Like, don't listen to me. Like, please, you know, do your own. One of my fears is that people are going to take what I say as gospel or verbatim. And I'm like, please, please do your own research and please find what works for you. So, yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.